Let me invite your attention once again to the 27th chapter of the book of Acts. And I would like to read just a phrase from the final verse of the chapter, actually. Acts chapter 27, look at verse 44. So if we break this into three particular parts, I'm looking at the very end. And notice these words. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. In just a few moments, I'd like to bring you the message, Safely Home. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your kindness to us and preserving us to this day. And once again, for the privilege of worship, we confess, we take a few moments now at the beginning of this time of looking into your word just to confess our complete unworthiness and our sinfulness and our dependence upon you. We know that we can neither speak nor hear apart from the ministry and work of your Holy Spirit. Oh, we possess the faculties to do those things. But what we're really interested in this morning is the heart to do those things. And so I pray, Lord, that you would come to me and to each one here with a fresh sense of your presence, with a fresh sense of urgency to come before you in humble dependence and confession, knowing that this is an hour of divine appointment, You haven't made any mistakes. You have directed in uh, the songs that we have sung, in the scripture that we have read, and now the things that we will look at from this chapter. I can only pray that you will sanctify those things even further to our good and your glory in this day. And I thank you now for the privilege of opening your word. In Jesus' wonderful name, amen. Well, we have before us in the 27th chapter of Acts, Luke's masterful account of the voyage and shipwreck of Paul. Lots of people have had lots of things to say about this chapter. This chapter is a fine fine example of storytelling that you'll find anywhere in the New Testament. It's something of a classic, really, as different commentators have pointed out, in its own right which is why I wanted to read to you the entire story. Something interesting that we can also say about this chapter is that the details with which the chapter is given to us are completely accurate in all respects. Years and years ago, in the 1840s actually it was, a man by the name of James Smith, James Smith was a Scottish theologian, Uh, He was so accomplished in the knowledge of the scripture in his own right. But beyond that, James Smith was also a, a Mediterranean yachtsman. So he knew the Bible, but on the other hand, he knew the Mediterranean, and he knew what the conditions were. He wrote what has kind of become the classic work if you want to study this chapter in detail. But one of the really interesting things that you will get from that if you read that is that every detail that we're given here is absolutely authentic, right down to the names of the places, the cities, the depth of the water in the various places, the island, which we read in chapter 28, verse 1, which was Melita, where they eventually ran the ship aground. Anything you want to read in this chapter, right down to the number of days and the calculated speeds that it would take you to get from one place to another. I mean, when you study this, It's just another one of those things that just incredibly impresses you about the accuracy of God's word 
and how God has preserved it for us. There's also something else about this chapter, and that is there's no other passage, and it's one of the reasons it's kind of a, regarded as a classic in its own right. There is no other passage that we have in all of classical literature that provides us with as much insight as this particular chapter does into the workings of an ancient ship. So all of these things I've said to say this, on the surface and on the level at which we would normally tend to read this, the details of it, they're all incredibly interesting in their own right. But it's also been pointed out by any number of people who have read the Bible and studied the Bible over the years, and this is kind of where I'm headed in the message this morning, that you know there is a, as is often the true, there is a story behind the story. And what I mean by that is, is when you think in a figurative sense, I think we can use that word safely and nobody will become alarmed, but when you think of the sense of it, the story behind the story and think of the fact that years, I mean thousands of years, people have recognized, not just in the Bible but elsewhere, people have recognized that life is something of a picture. Voyage across a stormy sea is something of a picture of what life is like, the journey of the soul. You know, it would be wonderful to be able to stand here this morning and tell you that every day were fair, was, was calm waters and fair seas. I mean, every day when you got up, everything would just be balmy and nice, and you would never run into any problems or difficulties. Everybody here this morning, whether you're a believer or not a believer, knows that isn't true. The fact is that we get some days like that, and I'll tell you, I grew up along the coast, so I can identify with a lot of this. When you get those glass days and the water just doesn't seem to have a ripple, it has a beauty and a, and a, and a quietness all of its own that just refreshes the soul. Take it in while you get it, because you don't get that many days like that. Much of the time it's choppy. Some of the times it's rough. The wind blows against you. You have in these days, difficulty sailing. There's a little detail in this that maybe it would help, be helpful to point out at this stage of the story or of the introduction. You get down to a place in this chapter where Paul is, feels compelled to intervene and to speak for the first time, at least that we have Luke tell us about in the story. And the reason for it is, is because it mentions the fact that the fast is already passed. And what you have to understand about sailing on the Mediterranean, particularly in the ancient world, when you didn't have seagoing vessels, you had them, but not like what we think about today. But you would get to a place late in October, somewhere around the third week of October, you would get to a place where it, it was considered unsafe to make a journey, particularly westward across the Mediterranean, because the prevailing winds are west. And so you're trying to fight those winds the entire time, and you have storms. And so they already undertook this vessel at a period of time when it, there was some risk attached to it. But when the fast was already well past, you, you got to a certain place in November where basically commercial sailing across the Mediterranean in Paul's day was completely closed. They just didn't do it because it was too risky. That's what's going on. You know, life is a little bit like what I've kind of described a lot of the time. I mean, so often the winds are contrary. So often we encounter difficulties. And you know, the reason for this is, and what I'm talking about is not just true of believers, it's true of men in general, men and women in general. The reason for it is we live in a broken world, don't we? 
And that's why it's not the Garden of Eden every day. That's why conditions are not just always perfectly calm and pristine, because we live in a broken world. So what I'm describing here is true of people in general. But you don't read the story, but what you sense a difference between people in general, people who don't know the Lord, and people who do. And there were both kinds on board this ship. We have the detail in this story that there were 276 people. You might say to yourself, wow, that seems like a, a, an awfully large number. Actually, it's not, because we actually have stories and references in Josephus to Josephus himself, which the, the Roman historian was, was, was shipwrecked on a vessel that, that had 600 passengers on board, and he mentions this. So this is, again, this detail is completely authentic, but of these 276 people, I can tell you this, there were three believers at least when the story began. I can't tell you how many there were when it ended. But when the story began, there were at least three. Who are those three people? Because I'm going to name them, but we're going to talk primarily about one of them. The hero of the story, of course, is Paul. He's obviously one of them. Luke is also along. You say, I didn't see Luke's name mentioned. Oh yeah, you did, you just didn't see L-U-K-E. What you saw was we. And if you're familiar with the book of Acts, this is one of the so-called we passages where he changes from writing in another person to the first person plural, it's we because he's a part of it. He's telling this story firsthand. He, he was along with Paul when all of this took place. And then, of course, we have another person mentioned, and that person was Aristarchus, probably a convert from Paul's second missionary journey when he visited Thessalonica and, and was in Macedonia. So there are at least three believers, and what I'm interested in is pointing out the fact to you that, you know, there's a huge difference between someone like Paul, he kind of is the standout in the story, so we don't get much attention focused on the other two, but there's an obvious huge difference between the way Paul conducts himself and what Paul is feeling and the security that Paul has in his own heart and life and what these others were experiencing. And that's what I want to talk to you about this morning. How is it that Paul is able to exemplify a man of faith among the world of men? And a lot of it has to do with the fact that we have a hope that people who don't know the Lord don't have. And that is, we have the hope of security in Christ. We know that we will arrive safely home. We don't always know the outcome of all of life's appointed journeys. We know that we will make it safely through all of the appointed journeys that God has for us. But we know something beyond that. We know that when the final storm comes, when it's time to leave this world, that storm can't harm us. Paul was concerned about the loss of the ship and of human life. Storms in life can definitely harm you. But I want to tell you something, beloved. There is this final storm that we will all one day face. It cannot harm you. And it, this is what I want you to get from the outset, and then I will try to develop in the message. That is an absolutely transforming truth. That is something that you and I have that believers don't have. It enables us, unbelievers, it enables us to face life with a certain serenity and calm. It allows you to get on an airplane and not be worried about what's going to happen. 
I mean, you might be worried about the outcome of that particular flight. No one gives you the guarantee unless the Holy Spirit is somehow impressed on your heart that you're going to arrive safely at your destination. But it's like an evangelist told me one time, he said, you know, he tried to witness on airplanes. It's probably a good place to do that. And he told me, he said, he'd get, in the, he'd get into a line he liked to use. He'd, he'd start trying to witness to somebody. He said, you know, if this thing goes down, I'm going up. And it's a nice colloquial, colloquial down-home way of saying something, and you and I have that. That's a treasure. I hope that's something that you appreciate. But you know something? We're, in the message this morning, I want to start off by highlighting towards the end of the chapter. We don't have time to talk about it all. I've probably spent too much time already with it by way of introduction. But what I really want to focus on is as we get down towards the end of the story, we find out that our experiences... I mean, this is true of unsaved people, but I want you to think particularly of yourself as someone who knows the Lord, if you do. Our experiences in this journey and through the storms of life, this, across the stormy sea of life, they, they differ widely. And I want to point you to four groups of people that you might not have thought of in this light before. First of all, I want to talk to you about what I'll call the threatened. What's going on here, and I'm thinking particularly at the beginning of verse 42 and into a little bit of verse 43, it says the soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners. Well, you know, Paul was one of those prisoners. And not only was Paul one of those prisoners, but probably in the way this was set up in the legal sense, probably Luke and Aristarchus would have been viewed the same way. A prisoner who was a Roman citizen, Paul was a Roman citizen. So this is a huge distinction. Luke tells us at the beginning of the chapter, other prisoners. It's really interesting. He uses that Greek word heteros, which is different than others of the same kind. It's prisoners of a different sort. So he may be distinguishing between the fact that Paul was a Roman citizen and the others were not. More likely, he's commenting on the fact that these other people, probably many of them were vicious criminals. They may have been being transported to Rome to be cast to the, to the wild beasts or to be executed in some other manner. We don't have those details. But Paul was a Roman citizen, and so he's one of these prisoners. And of course, we don't know how many others there are. This plan of the soldiers, think about this for a few minutes. Maybe it seems extreme to you. They were going to kill. As soon as it, as soon as it became clear that it was going to be every man for himself, as soon as it became clear that, that, that these people stood the chance of getting off that ship, jumping overboard, whatever they whatever they might be able to do, and get to that island where they could go 75 ways from Sunday, these people could have escaped. Some of these people could have escaped. Sound cruel to you? Sound harsh? Not so much when you consider it from the standpoint of the soldier who's probably accountable for those prisoners with his life. So while it's a harsh reality and while it's a harsh world, these guys were probably just acting completely normally. My point to you, though, is there are times in our journey across the troubled waters of life that things come up whereby we feel threatened. Ever had one of those times? I'm sure you have. In fact, sometimes it's the loss of a job, sometimes it's the loss of health. There are a lot of things that can make you feel threatened, even as a believer. I want to tell you a story that's more than 25 years old. 
But these things are like yesterday to me. I think the ones that are more than 25 years old or back a ways, they're, they're clearer to me than what happened yesterday. But it was a winter morning, and we lived on... T the local term for it was we were hilltoppers. In other words, we lived up on the side of a ridge where our house was really about 500 yards line of sight to the church, but you couldn't drive line of sight because all these homes in this particular it's called Cedar Tree Manor. All these homes were built along parts of the switchback. You'd come a certain distance like this, hit a curve, go back another certain distance, you'd be going up, hit another switchback curve, and go back up some more until that's how you terraced it, and the homes would be built along those stretches, but you'd come to those curves. Well, at the time, I had a 1995 Geo Prism under lease, and so we got ready to leave the house in the early morning, and I put the kids in the car, because school and church were the same destination. And off we were, I to work and they to school. Oh, we knew it had been snowy out. I mean, the plow truck had been up the street and everything seemed to be copacetic. But sometimes those curves had a way of being really tricky because the plow wasn't quite as effective in certain spots and you got wise to this over time. Certain things could be missed, especially on those curves. And we came to this next-to-last curve on the way down. I always call it a Harbaugh's curve because uh, a dear lady by the name of Harbaugh lived in the house right on that corner or on that, on that curve. And we hit a patch of ice. Just as we were coming out of the curve to head down the next stretch, we hit a patch of ice. Now, see, snow's one thing, beloved, but ice is another thing. You know that, right? Those of you who have had some experience with that, it's another thing altogether. And... I don't know anything else to tell you except I lost control of the car. It's happened to a lot of people on the ice, especially when you don't realize it might be coming. And I had tried to slow down and, and be driving safely. I obviously had my three kids in the car with me. But I lost control of the car. And I did what you could do, but you know, there's only so much you can do under the circumstances. And I mean, we were right at the threshold where I actually said to my kids, hold on, we're going over the side. And to go over the side meant about a 10-foot drop into the guy's backyard that was in the next level below. And that would have been precipitous enough that it wouldn't have been a pretty thing. I'm sure there would have been some fairly serious injury that would have come out of that. And so I yelled to my kids, hold on, we're going over the side. At the very last instance, that car stopped. I was so amazed, I was so awestruck at what had happened that as soon as I got my wits back about me, I got out of the car and looked. What had stopped that car? A little sapling about that big around. I mean an inch, if that. And then many years as I've thought about that, I've thought to myself, he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways. They shall bear thee up in their hands, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. And how do I relate that to this? Well, God put Julius there. Think about that for a moment. God put Julius there. We don't have any indication that Julius was a Christian. But Julius was in command. Believe it or not, he outranked everyone else on that ship, even the captain. See, that's not English law. English law would be the captain is the final word of authority. 
the centurion, particularly being of the imperial regiment, he outranked the captain and the owner of the ship. He outranked them all. And he outranked every one of those soldiers. And he intervened to stop the soldiers from their plan. Why? Because the text tells us he was desirous of saving Paul. Do you begin to grasp this, beloved? Do you begin to think as I do, how many times has God intervened in my life? How many times has God put someone there or something there to spare me from some unseen or unknown danger and I'm here today because God is with me in all these storms and he's with you? Well, we have to hasten because the next group of people are the challenged. If you look at verse 43, after we hear about the centurion and his intervention to save Paul, what did he do to order those who could swim to jump overboard first? Well, I want you to think about this for a minute. The reason I call them the challenged, this isn't over yet. Because, see, what's happened is something the, something the sailors, despite all of their skill, there was nothing they could really do about this. I mean, I don't have time to tell you about all of what's involved here, but these guys studied this thing out carefully. I mean, as soon as it got to be daylight, the scriptures say they were, they were looking at this beach, they were looking, and they were figuring this thing out, and they, they thought that they'd seen a place where there was a beach where they could run the ship aground and, and everyone would be safe. They couldn't see that sandbar. See, I grew up in Charleston, and there's an old story about an apprentice pilot who was piloting the ship into the harbor, and the, the guy who was the teacher behind him put his hand on his shoulder, and he said, you know where all the sandbars are? And the apprentice looked at him and he said, no, sir, but I know where they're not. Well, the soldiers didn't have that advantage. They didn't recognize this place. They didn't know where they were. They only knew the best they could possibly know. What they didn't know was that underneath that water was this sandbar. Now, our, our ESV translates as a reef. More likely, if you think of a reef, you're thinking of something hard, you're thinking of something shelly, in which case, a, a ship like this hitting that would have probably jumped up onto it and been stuck that way. It says here, run aground, so I'm thinking in particularly with what we know about that particular area, I mean, because it's known pretty much exactly where this shipwreck occurred, that more likely, uh, and by the way, too, it's also described as a place where there, was, where there were cross currents. You get that kind of thing, and you often get deposits of sand. Well. It's more likely that what was here was sand or mud, something like that. If you've ever had this experience, if you run even a smaller boat into something like that, here's the net effect. I mean, the bow is stuck at that point. You gotta get out and push or do some other work to get, the, to get that thing loose again. Even a smaller boat, that's true. But see, here's the detail, the, the stern. How far do you think the stern is a stern? How long do you think this boat was? How long do you think this ship was? Let's be conservative. Let's say 150 feet, 125 feet. The stern of the boat is still 125 to 150 feet offshore. The depth in that area could exceed 30 feet. With storm conditions, and this is what the scriptures tell us, the violence of the waves, the violence, our, our version is a, is a little bland here and just says the surf more literally, the violence of the waves. I mean, so it's, these guys that can swim, they jump overboard first. The centurion says, hey, you're on your own, but 
You can swim, jump overboard, go for it right now. I, the reason I liken them to the challenged is because they have a leg up. I mean, it's still dangerous. That's my whole point. You can still very easily drown. You still very easily get caught up in those currents or swept over with a wave or something like that. So it's not like it's on easy street at this particular juncture. There's still problems going on out there. But it's not as bad as the other two groups of people that we're going to look at here briefly. And you know, when you look around in church life, Christian experience, you look at your own life, you have a lot of people. In fact, I'm not so sure that's not the majority category. We're all challenged, beloved. Every single person here this morning faces challenges. Nobody here on Easy Street, I can tell you that. I don't care how, how docile they look on Sunday morning or how cherubic or composed. Everybody's got struggles. Everybody's got challenges in life. And they're, they're of multiple different kinds, which is kind of what we're after here. Our struggles differ widely. Why is that? Well, some people are better prepared. If you can swim, you're a little better prepared. Some people... Who knows? It's just the providence of God. It's the plan of God. God spares them the things that we see in others. What do we see in others? Well, now we look at verse 44. There's two groups of people left. And frankly, they're both desperate, very desperate. But I'm going to distinguish them because I think Luke does that. Again, the, the grammar of this isn't brought out too clearly because he uses an expression that's kind of a, what, what in English the best translation of it would be some this not the word this, but some this, some that, to give you kind of the distinction between. That's why I'm breaking this into two, two groups. So look what it says in the text. And the rest is how this is translated on planks. So the violence of the waves pummels the stern of the ship. It's already weakened because of the storm. It breaks up. And it just breaks up. That vessel was never going to sail again. I mean, it just breaks up. Some people are fortunate enough to get a hold of a plank. You know, if you get a hold of a plank in a situation like that, you may not be able to swim, but you're better off than the guy sitting over there that can't do anything. Because a plank, particularly one of any length, and if it has any width, it's got some buoyancy, and you can latch onto that thing, and you've got some measure of security in that. There are a lot of folks around us like that in life, you know, desperate, just desperate. I mean, the storms of life are, make, you, make you just absolutely feel desperate. I wish I had more time for this story, but I tell you, years and years and years, back before the other one I told you, while we were still living in the Charleston area, but th this particular time in my life, I was a teenager, we were living out from town, we were living out in the country, we lived on a tidal creek. And that tidal creek, you'd go down to the end of that tidal creek and it would empty out into what we always called it the big river. But when I'm not talking about the big river, it was the intercoastal waterway, but in that section, the intercoastal waterway overlapped with the North Edisto. And when you would come out of that tidal creek, I'm telling you what, beloved, it was 200 yards if it was an inch across there. It was, that's why we called it the big river. We'd gone to a Bible study one night. Our family and another family had gone over to another place about six miles away to a Bible study. I can't tell you the precise reason why. But our neighbors that were closest to us also lived on that tidal creek, were also believers, went with us to this Bible study, and their oldest child, a son, roughly my brother's age, had gone home early or had just not come. I don't recall that particular detail, but somehow out in the yard, because it's a wintertime, you wouldn't have had windows open, he heard a guy call for help. And he was out there in that water, and it was, it was not good weather. It was cold, windy, 
And he had the presence of mind as quickly as he could to go and, and get their boat, get the motor on it, get out there. It was a miraculous thing, really, that he found that guy in all that out there. As big as that water was, somehow he was able to locate that guy. I'm going to tell you what he saw when he saw that guy. He saw a guy that had an oar. Think of an oar. That's not a plank. He had an oar onto which he had attached two milk jugs for more buoyancy. I'm telling you, that's, that's desperate. And he actually told the young man that came for him in the boat, he said, if you hadn't come, he said, I, I was done. I was done. I mean, the temperature of the water, everything else, I mean, he would have just slipped beneath that water and been gone. You ever feel that way in life? You ever feel like it, you're just about to let go? You just, I mean, these people were at the place where they had very little hope, if any, other than the encouragement that Paul gave them. And lastly, we're going to talk about the shattered. They're kind of like the ship. I mean, it broke up. It's what it says, some on boards, as the King James says, or some on broken pieces of the ship. But now what you're dealing with is you're dealing with the worst category of desperate because you're dealing with people that have experienced such storms in their lives that they're broken. I mean, they have nothing left. They're just as limp as a dish rag. They're just absolutely broken by the experiences that they've had in life. I want to tell you something. If you feel like you fall into either of these last two categories this morning, I want to tell you I'm speaking with reverence. I wouldn't begin to stand in this pulpit and be sanctimonious about something like this. I have known people on the precipice. You have perhaps known people like that. I mean, life can be a cruel commodity. And I have known people to have experienced such storms in their lives to, as to be absolutely shattered by them. But we must hasten and find out the ending of the story because when you get to verse 44 and you look at the last phrase which is all that we're left with but it's the punchline I mean it's the whole story right there and Luke handles it with such deftness he just says rather matter-of-factly and so it was that all were brought safely to land do you realize the wallop that's in that statement it's incredible Well, we have to think about life's appointed journeys. Lots of those, but you don't know how many, right? In lots of journeys in life, you're on one today. Once in a rare while, it may be true that God gives us a certain peace and a certain calm. I think that does happen on occasion. But in a lot of cases, I'll go back to the airplane again, or when you get in your car, to leave church this morning. Think about this. How many times do you ever think about this? It's possible for you to get on board that car and be heading home thinking you're just going home to Sunday dinner like you've done hundreds of times before. There have been people who have done that and never made it home. You know this. I know this. Frankly, I don't get up in the morning and worry about it. But that's the next thought. It's true, though. But you just have a certain calm about life. And how is it that you have a certain calm about life? Well, you do, but I will tell you this. I think sometimes we do 
even our heroes a little bit of a disservice when we so elevate them on pedestals that we don't re realize that they're cut out of the same bolt of fallen cloth that the rest of us are. I want you to look at verse 20 just briefly. Why I say this, we don't have time to do much with it, but it says here, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. You might read that and not think there's much to it, but he's using the first person plural. It's only translated as a possessive here, our, all hope of our being saved. But when you look at it in the original, it's very clear, well, it's, it's the we again. So is he speaking matter-of-factly and just kind of, or in, a, in an inclusive way, and just thinking of everybody on board in a general sense, or is he thinking even about Paul? You think Paul was above despairing? You think? Because Paul's one of my heroes. In fact, Paul's my New Testament hero, and I don't think so. I don't think so. Well, what reinforces that? That might not be in an enough in and of itself, but what reinforces that is when you get to verse 24, because right at the moment that I would postulate that Paul himself despaired what the outcome of this particular journey was going to be, there stood by me, he said, this night the angel of God. I'm going to tell you something, beloved. God has his ways of encouraging his people when they need it the most. And God had already told the Apostle Paul before this. In fact, before he ever left Palestine, God had already told him back in chapter 23 and verse 11. But it's couched in the same language. The following night, this is when Paul's about to be torn in pieces by the Jews in the midst of that horrible riot in the Sanhedrin, it says, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me at Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. What does he tell him in this verse that we're looking at in verse 24? The same thing, but with a little more detail. The angel of God appears. And what does he have? The message from God, Do not be afraid. But it's in the present tense. It's what in grammar you would refer to as a present prohibitive. It means... You're enjoining an action that's already underway. Stop doing something. And what the angel is telling Paul in very gentle terms is, Paul, get a hold of yourself. Stop fearing. Do you remember when I told you back in the Sanhedrin that you were going to Rome to testify of me there? I'm telling you this again because you need that word of encouragement from me again right now. Stop fearing, Paul. You must. It is necessary, it says literally. It is necessary for you to stand before Caesar. And I'll give you some icing on the cake. God has also granted you everyone else on this ship. That's what made him stand up as a man of faith in the world of men. What does he say? He says in verse 25, So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. Now, what one of us here today, I ask you this, what one of us here today hasn't been right in that same spot where we, we wondered whether or not we had tied the knot in the end of the rope of life and wondered whether we could even hold on, and God came. I mean, these are God moments. I've had them. You've had them. I don't have time to talk more about them this morning. All I want to do is say, praise God. He knows when you need it, and he's always there. 
But there's another thing. And why, why did that take place? Well, it took place because his mission wasn't finished. That's, that's, that's the way it's going to be, beloved. You know, your mission, until it's done, you're immortal. You know that? You, nothing's going to happen to you. I mean, you can get on. Yeah, let me put it to you this way. Go ahead and get on the airplane. You don't necessarily know the outcome, but you do know if it gets rough, you aren't getting off. You do know that, right? How many times have you had that thought? I had it on this last trip to Idaho. I mean to tell you, when we were coming back, we flew from Boise to Dallas-Fort Worth. As soon as I heard Dallas-Fort Worth, I said, oh, brother. I mean, and now I read here just a week or so ago, they're going to build the sixth concourse. They got five of them now. The place is a zoo, absolute zoo. I came back and told Pastor Cameron about this. I said, you know, it was great. We, we started going over the Rockies, and I'm looking down there, and you know, you're 30-some thousand feet in the air, and all of a sudden I look down, and now we're 20-some thousand feet in the air, or whatever it was. I mean, it's just like, whoop, the ground just came up. And you're looking at these beautiful mountains. They have snow on them. And all of a sudden, it started getting bumpy with a big B. And it got bumpier. And those people in the aisle with the service cart, they'd gotten up there to first class. Those lucky guys. I mean, they got their food, they got their beverage, and then they came back where the plebeians were, you know, the rest of us, with those Mickey Mouse crackers and a juice or whatever you're going to get. But, you know, we were looking for that. We were hungry. And they came back down there, got about six rows, and they went and sat down. The captain came on and he said, ladies and gentlemen, I'm really sorry to have to interrupt the beverage service, but he said, it's too rough. And he called, he called out and said, it's some kind of air currents over the Rockies. It was like it's, you know... I do this every day, no problem. You and I aren't used to that. So I'm just kind of looking there, you know, and looked at my brother, and he looked at me, and, well, if this thing goes down, I'm going up. It's like that, but I wasn't sure, to be honest with you. I'm not a pilot. I'm not on those things every day. It made me nervous. Nervous as a long-tailed cat in a room full of rocking chairs. But you know, until you're done. It's just like that day I went in the woods and fell. I could have been killed like that. Probably should have been. God wasn't done. Finally, though, you'll face the final storm. So will I. Unless Jesus comes in the rapture, what I'm telling you right now is going to happen. It's going to blow hard. I don't know, you might be like that one guy that I remember, I had a service for him. I thought to myself, you know, if there was ever a way to go, that guy had it right there. I mean, he was 90-some years old. He woke up one morning, he, I guess he had his coffee, most people do. He's sitting there in his easy chair, and he just fell over. I mean, he didn't even get up. He said, look, he was gone. I thought to myself, yeah, that's, that's the textbook case. If I got to write mine, something like that sounds good. You don't get that guarantee. You do get the guarantee, though, that no matter what happens in that final storm, no matter how hard the wind blows, no matter how difficult sailing, I mean, it might be an illness, it might be a terminal illness, it might be some other circumstance. None of us knows those things. But in that final storm, you can still believe God. You can still have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. And do you know something? Because Paul's journey wasn't done, he made it through this. Do you know he'd made it through other shipwrecks before? <laughs> I mean, five years before, when he wrote 2 Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians 11, he said, Thrice, three times I have been shipwrecked, a 
a day and a night I have spent in the deep. Just think about that. That was what Paul gave some credibility when he stood up and said, I don't think we better take this journey. But there was coming another time in Rome, not this time. If we understand Paul's life correctly, Paul faced this particular situation in Rome, was exonerated, was released from prison, had a continuing ministry during which he wrote 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, but it caught up to him under Nero. He was rearrested, and when he writes 2 Timothy at this stage in his life, he says this, I'm ready. I'm ready to be offered. The time of my departure has come. He knew it. He just knew it. That didn't mean he didn't have to face the executioner. He says, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. The one day at Rome, still same place, he would finish his course, but in that final storm, God promised him safe passage. Later in the chapter, he says this, At my first defense, no man, this is sad, no man came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. Now there's a fellow with grace. That's a Stephen-like prayer right there. But the Lord stood by me. He will you too. He will me too. So that through me the message might be fully proclaimed that all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. That must be figurative language because Paul as a Roman citizen would not be subjected to the Colosseum. He would have been executed with a Roman sword. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. You believe that? Because if you're here this morning and you're in Christ, and you know that Jesus Christ is your personal Savior, and you know you've been born again and washed in the blood, the Lord will rescue you from every evil deed. Paul says it in other places. For I am sure, he told the Romans, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height. I like that one on the airplane. Nor death, nor any other created thing. Anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Grab it. Hold on to it. Because just like Paul, you can believe in God. You can have faith in God that it will be exactly as you have been told. That's where assurance comes in. You might be here this morning. You might be struggling with it. Let me just final, finalize the message with this little brief story. You know, this is a story that F.B. Meyer used to tell, but it was a story about two Germans that decided they wanted to climb the Matterhorn. Now the Matterhorn, that's an extraordinarily, one of the steepest peaks in the Alps, 15,000 feet. Well, these Germans decided they were going to climb at the, wouldn't you know, the steepest place and the slipperiest. So they hired three guides. I think I would have hired a helicopter. They hired three guides and they decided here's how they would do it. They had the lead guide go first, then one of the Germans, then another guide, then the other German, and at the end, another one of the guides. Well, they got up this thing a little bit, and sure enough, the guy at the end, one of the guides, he slipped. I mean, the other people were able to hold him because they had niched out into that ice footholds. But after just a few moments of all of that stress and strain, 
The next one gave way, the next one gave way, the next one gave way. The top guy, first in line, held them all. Held them all until they could regain a foothold and regain security. How did he do that? He had nailed a spike, as hikers on the ice, climbers on the ice will do. He had nailed a spike into that ice. And he grabbed hold of that thing and held. You have that same thing. You have God's promises. See, assurance doesn't have anything to do, do with how well you're doing today or the circumstances of life. Assurance has to do with the stake, which is Christ and his word. That's what you have to get a hold of. That's what will make you different and me different. And if you're here this morning and you don't know the Lord is your personal Savior, well, I think of the words of a song. O soul, sinking down neath life's merciless, life, neath sin's merciless wave, the strong arm of our captain is mighty to save. Then trust him today, no longer delay. Board the old ship of Zion and shout on your way. Jesus saves. Jesus saves. Shout and sing on your way. Jesus saves. Father, help us, bless us. As we sing this final storm in which we're reminded that in any storm in life you are with us and that Christ is the captain of our destiny, may we be reminded, strengthened, and refreshed by these glorious truths. In Christ's name I pray, amen.